weekly update every week during the month of July, except for uh, Erev Shabbos Nachum. That'll be the only time that uh, will be off. Otherwise, uh, tell your friends, tell your relatives, tell your business associates, tell all your colleagues, tell those who want to be up, up to date on the things that we discuss here on this show. Uh, let them know that uh, we are here throughout the month of July, except again, uh, the final Friday of July, which is Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Malcolm Honline is, oh, and by the way, um, Rabbi Yudin will be speaking to us from Israel today, which is always extra special. Rabbi Yudin will be addressing us from Israel regarding Parshas Pinchas. It's always extra special. Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you and everyone. Um, I mean, what goes through your mind when you hear that Israeli technology was one of the main ingredients in finding the uh, the Thai soccer team that's now still trapped in those tunnels below the surface of the earth? Yeah, I think it's really one of the horrific stories um, to think what these kids have been through, but thank God they were found, and hopefully they can be brought out quickly. And the fact that Israeli technology was enlisted uh, is always rewarding and uh, encouraging, but not surprising. When you look at what is happening around the world and how many times Israeli technology has been enlisted or Israeli services have been enlisted in every you know tragic event, whether it's in uh, in South America during the recent volcano or in, in Honduras and in Haiti and, and Nepal and, and um, Kenya, they were, uh, Israel's uh, expertise, technology, personnel were available and made available as they are today in Syria, where medical personnel are treating thousands of Syrians who are moving towards the Israeli border um, as they escape the fighting in southern Syria, uh, the, near the Israeli border, Andrew-Danian border, but also moving with them are some of the militia and some of the other groups, as well as the Syrian army, which is encroaching more and more on the Golan. Uh, but the the story, this heroic story of what Sheba Hospital others are doing, uh, the hospitals in the North Rambam uh, as well, is is truly remarkable. And yet it gets very short shrift because when Israel does these miraculous things, uh, it doesn't get the notice the World Health Organization, which condemns Israel on the issue of women while it's light years ahead of virtually everybody else in the World Health Organization, uh, hasn't found a commendation that they can uh, give or even verbal to Israel for its amazing role in all of these crises. And we should note that there have been countries, leaders of certain countries, that have rejected Israeli help. I mean, again, when it comes to Israeli technology, I don't know if they'd be sophisticated enough to realize that, it, you know, if they would reject all of Israeli technology, most of these societies wouldn't be able to exist, frankly, at this point, as we know. Uh, but there have been uh, offers of help during different situations that have been rejected by certain countries when Israel has gone ahead and made the offer. And everything you said about the uh, hospitals, which uh, you, which you do thank God on a regular basis, as you said, it gets so little attention from those around the world. It's, it's also interesting to watch how Israeli citizens, whether it's through toy collections, money, uh, whatever it is, are, are trying to assist these refugees and those who've been injured in Syria, especially the children. So it doesn't, it's not even, it's not just the medical community. It's amazing how it's spread out to what seems to be, you know, all Israelis at this point. 
it is true, and the the people have responded generously. And if you think about it, you know, Israel's a small country, yep. it's got tremendous financial burdens as well. Yep. Uh, and yet the people, I, I remember being in Sderot once, and the, while they were under fire, constant fire, and all they kept asking me is, how are the people in the north doing? Can we send them stuff? Can, giving me baskets of fruit that we should take up to them when we were going up later in the day. And here are people who are literally living under siege for months and months, and all their concern was for others. Unbelievable. It's just incredible. Lots to be proud of, that's for sure. Uh, all right, a couple of stories this week that I, I've got to ask you about. First of all, this, this Ellie Cohen wristwatch uh, story. I mean, somehow after all these years, he was executed by the Syrians in the mid-1960s. Somehow the Israeli spies wristwatch got out of, I assume, Syria. Could you tell us any background on this? Uh, well, you can see the, uh, um, the watch online now, uh, and it was a special operation by the Mossad that uh, got his wristwatch out. As you know, there have been many attempts and a great deal of attention to trying to get the body returned, although the Syrians claim that they uh, it's in a hidden location or special uh, places that they didn't know. The, the watch was not with him. Uh, you remember ah, he was an Egyptian-born Jew who worked as an undercover agent in Egypt and Syria right. and was hung, I think, in 1964, 65. Right. And uh, I have met with Mrs. Cohen uh, many times. She's she's in Israel, and I did speak to Assad about it and to others um, over the years. We're trying to 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 get his his returns, but you know that it was a that was a long shot. This was, um, you know, it's it's a message. You know, everybody can say, well, so what is a wristwatch? It, it's symbolism, and it's uh, a reminder of um, of what the heroic work that he did and how many others are doing to protect the people of Israel and why everybody compliments them on their intelligence but don't think of the sacrifices and go to the lobby of um, of the Mossad Hall or the Shinbet Halls or the others and see the number of people who lost their lives in the line of duty. And for those of you who are too young to remember, Google Ellie Cohen, start reading about it, watch the movie. There's been plenty that's been written about him, and of course... Several books. And several books as well, and of course, uh, major motion pictures, and you'll see the type of sacrifice. And his wife never, ever uh, lets anyone forget the type of sacrifice he made uh, for the Jewish people. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, some of the key information helped in the 1967 Six-Day War as well, which is probably the most high-profile aspect of his being a spy, right? Absolutely. Uh, an Israeli has been selected to lead the United Nations Human Rights Body. Professor Yuval Shani, the first Israeli to head the Human Rights Committee. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I would think that the UN would somehow figure out a way to keep Israelis off of the Human Rights Committee. This is not the Human Rights Council. This is a separate body. Uh, people think that uh, this is the body that, um, the, the major body. This is a commission that looks at the implementation of laws. He has been a member of the committee for a while and was selected as its chairman by the committee itself. It's not a UN General Assembly vote or Security Council vote. Symbolically, it's important, and the fact that the Israelis are in a few key positions in, in the United Nations, very few, but uh, nonetheless are. Uh, that is uh, that is important, but it's the, his personal qualities, I guess, and the expertise that uh, he's a professor of law, so that um, uh, enabled him to get selected. 
the the fact is also that this week we saw at the Human Rights Council when the Article Seven, the article that focuses on Israel, was brought up. Many of the European countries boycotted the session, and I think this has a lot to do with the U.S. leadership uh, and the U.S. criticism and troll from the Human Rights Council. They threatened that the um, uh, people are acknowledging the bias in the UN, even if they're not willing to act against it. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of the UN, by the way, I'm sure you saw this Wall Street Journal article, Richard Goldberg and Jonathan Shanzer. The claim, of course, is that there are 5 million Palestinian refugees um, starting with the 1948 war, uh, around that time of Israel's independence. And uh, apparently there was a report in 2015 that was suppressed by the President of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, which would have proven or exposed that the refugee number is much, much, much less. What do we know about this? Well, it's a subject that's been debated because the numbers are inflated constantly and consistently. <clears throat> no one ever died in the camps because the standard of living in the camps was higher than in most of the surrounding Arab the areas in the in the Arab states. And so people would pass on their uh, identification cards from anybody who died to someone else. So the population kept growing, and we see it being magnified that they talk about 9 million, not just 5 million, 9 million refugees. Uh, Abbas has used uh, numbers like this and, right. uh, over the years. And the, the, the obvious purpose, you know, when you magnify the numbers, you can make greater demands on, quote, right of return, which is not a right, and there's no return. And the... Um, uh, you know, it's part of the the new narrative. Uh, people can invent narratives when they to make a point and to to establish their case. Here, you have um, them. The, the Palestinians have consistently uh, escalated the numbers, augmented the numbers. Uh, but the fact is that the core group, and this study supposedly shows that it is far less. And, and, and other studies have even had lower numbers of the of the actual people. Yeah, they write and that. at one point, the question is, what point do they stop being refugees? When right. Do they stay refugees for the next 30 generations? Well, because they refuse to, the Arab states refuse to integrate them, as Israel did the larger number of Jews who escaped Arab persecution in Arab states in the region and came to Israel to be, to be adopted and absorbed uh, and not kept in camps. Yeah, they estimate that there could be as many as 30,000 who remain alive today, and the reason that the um, the numbers are so large is that in some cases, great-great-grandchildren are listed as refugees who insist on the quote-unquote right of return. Here it says that in April, more than 50 House members urged uh, the, the um, State Department to declassify the report. Florida Senator Marco Rubio has done the same. 2012. I think that was. This is 2012? Oh. No, in 2012, the Congress uh, gave an order to the State Department uh, about this to, to disclose how many Palestinians uh, were served by UNRWA, how many that fled in 1948, etc. So the, there has been consistent congressional action and pressure to try and get uh, real numbers. And then in April this year, right, uh, some 50 members, I think, of the House uh, alone... Uh, wanted to declassify the the report. So, the, I mean, my simple question is, you know, we we know what the president of the United States has done uh, vis a vis Israel, you know, during the first part of his term. Why wouldn't he just go ahead and reverse the policy? They may not know about it. You know, it's it's still an administration that's finding its feet in many areas, and I don't think it's a policy decision not to release this uh, information. Uh, they obviously, I guess, in the previous administration, were concerned about what the backlash would be and that it would ignite um, 
tensions and further debates and that they think that this is a way to cut the benefits that these people are receiving when, in fact, an argument could be made that uh, it's time that they be freed from the shackles of this and go out and make their living. You know that in countries like Lebanon, they can't work. They can't take professional positions. I mean, and many areas of employment are proscribed from them. But, Unbelievable. And again, nobody knows. And also in the Syrian war, you know, you see the, the criticisms being leveled, but nobody talks about the, the Palestinians who have been killed in the in the Irma camp and uh, that thousands were, were displaced already. And, uh, and that issue doesn't get any attention. Uh, the Iran spy trial against former energy minister Gonan Segev has already begun? Yes. You know, in this, you know, in this country, it takes months after the indictment is set up a yeah, trial. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about. I mean, they have hard and fast information. That doesn't mean that the trial will be fast. I think it's been uh, now suspended for for a while. But the, um, you know, the charges against him are, are, are very clear, and he, he is denying, obviously, that the, the charges that he spied. But the, they supposedly gave information to the Iranians. I don't know that the quality of that information is. Having having trouble having trouble hearing you. Are you you there? Yes, sir. Oh, there you go. Segev is suspected of providing his Iranian handlers with intelligence related to, among other things, Israel's energy industry, security sites, buildings, and officials in Israeli political and security bodies. And and as you said, in in those categories, obviously there could be some very serious things that went on. But it seems in his case, it's very it's it's likely you'd say, or very likely that not very serious things went on. But I've heard, we don't know exactly, but he did supposedly give names of people involved in the defense and security areas, but um, that didn't have, say, nuclear secrets. Or We're having a lot of trouble hearing you. You keep breaking up on your phone. Um, you're there, right? Yep. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep trying here. Uh, Malcolm Holmline was with us, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NF, uh, NSN, uh, beloved NSN app. Speaking of trials that are starting quickly, again, not used to it <laughs> when you live in the U.S., apparently Sara Netanyahu actually goes to trial you know, toward the end of July? That's what they're saying, and whether they reach a deal or they have to really go through with the trial, because she was offered a deal earlier, uh, it looks like uh, she'll go to trial. Boy. That should be interesting. I saw that. I saw. I saw her. her husband. She thinks that too. Her her husband came out with an impassioned plea about. Uh, he almost, by the way, he almost, you know, um, uh, took a page out of Donald Trump's book with fake news. He almost, almost went ahead and called the media fake news. It was a little bit of a different description. It was more like the uh, you know unending war that the media has had for twenty years against her and the way that they portray her. So tremendous resentment. You, you thought our president hates the media. Uh, the prime minister of Israel is not enjoying um, the way they're treating his wife, that's for sure. And him. And him is right. Did you um, see that Marwan Barghouti is up in the polls in terms of who might replace Mahmoud Abbas? There's a more and more speculation about the succession, even though I don't think that there's any uh, single person. And because we have to remember that these each of these leaders have their own backers, including militias, that they have areas in which they are dominant. He is, of course, in an Israeli prison serving five life terms, and uh, there's no indication that Israel would let him out. Uh, and I think 
if they considered it, the backlash would be huge, and maybe even toppling a government as a result. So uh, the the um, contentiousness is is uh, ever increasing within the PA itself. The instability, of the PA. We know that the uh, you know the the they're talking about possibilities again of uh, reconciliation, and but till now Abbas is blocking any such effort. He, he doesn't want to see the rehabilitation of Gaza. Anything that would strengthen Hamas. Others say also we shouldn't show that we reward Hamas after what they're doing. You know the fires, the and people should know the scores of fires that were set just in this last week. Twenty one on one day alone. Uh, that every day of the week there are more and more. Again, something the the press doesn't uh, deem necessary to report on and try to play down the idea of the kites and the balloons when in fact they are causing uh, a lot of damage and a lot of harassment. Um, homes have been burnt, uh, certainly crops and fields, and it is uh, an ongoing uh, danger. Landed you know, on a child, it could also be very threatening. So the um, the PA itself is now under increasing pressure because of the new Taylor Force Equivalent Act in Israel, which would cut the, the transfer of funds, tax funds that Israel collects on behalf of the Palestinians, equivalent to the amount that they spend on uh, the terrorists, which is now estimated that the past year, three hundred and sixty-five million or three hundred fifty-six million uh, dollars that they have an infrastructure of five hundred and fifty people uh, working on it. And after um, I have to say, somewhat of a struggle, the law in Israel was passed, and this would um, deduct this this uh, money from the uh, payments that are are transferred. You know, and it's interesting to note if they're spending three hundred and fifty or sixty million dollars on this, and yet they only spend two hundred and ten million dollars for the welfare for one hundred and twenty thousand needy families, it tells you what their what their priorities are. Uh, Abbas is clearly not prepared at this point even to talk to the Americans, which is outrageous, and to and to discuss what the content is, and they're not going to show him uh, the plan beforehand. He's going to be uh, skeptical and and raise all sorts of um, of the usual charges that they that they engage in, but the economic pressures on him will grow. The internal dissension then grows. The uh, the, the expectation that a peace plan could be forthcoming, uh, I think, with low expectations about its likelihood of success, but the the um, the PA is already initiated a campaign against the U.S. plan, having demonstrations, etc. Some say it's a, it's their answer to the march of return that Hamas organized and the demonstrations rallying people behind their flag so that the PA will use this to, to rally. But in most cases, is a diversion from the problems and the realities that uh, of, of what people face. I can't get over the figure you just said, over $300 million. I thought it was... Uh... <laughs> I, I never thought it was that large, and um, and now I understand why it's so significant when uh, when Israel holds that money back. Three hundred thirty-six thousand family members, I think, get payments, and uh, got payments in twenty seventeen. Wow! So yes, it's it's always it's been a large amount of money, and you know this this is the, even some European countries. Australia joined 
in cutting its funding, which wasn't that large, but significant statement. Julie Bishop said that the foreign minister, uh, that they would not continue to to uh, fund this. Uh, more important that as other countries, other than just the United States and Israel, uh, join in sending a very strong message that this will not be tolerated. In Australia's case, they just cut all aid? It's all It's all gone? The, the aid to, to this. Now they, they say they're going to give the money to a U.N. agency, which spends money, not UNRWA, another one, that spends money in, on projects in, uh, in the Palestinian Authority. And, they, and, and in their public statement, they said it was because of pay for slay, because of sure. this. Wow. Unbelievable. So there's some... But she has been very strong, uh, and uh, as opposed to Austria, which we see is playing a very weak role and leading some of the counter-U.S. efforts on Iran, Australia uh, has been in the forefront of um, often of supporting the U.S. and Israel and the U.N. and other issues. Has Israel, in fact, stopped some large-scale terror attacks aimed at Europe? Uh, there are reports that Israel contributed to stopping the a terrorist attack in or in Israeli intelligence, maybe other things uh, was instrumental. I don't know. And nobody has uh, come out to, to say it. the prime minister hinted at it. Right. But what we saw is several uh, uh, things exposed in the last days indicating that Iran, while the Europeans are courting them and doing everything possible. Literally to, meeting with their president. Well, in the, he was in Austria this week, right? right? And others met with him, and the uh, he was in Germany. That uh, who and he is, of course, not a moderate, as they try to portray him. And we know it from the statements he made, including saying that oh, during his European trip, he threatened the United States, he threatened Israel, um, and uh, got applause from the Iran Revolutionary Guard at home for his. Uh, uh, radical statements, extreme statements, but here he is coming to Europe. They're going to meet, there's a meeting in Vienna of the foreign minister of China, Russia, France, Germany, UK, and obviously Austria. And they, they're telling us that they're not going to implement uh, the United States sanctions, that they're uh, going to continue to implement the JCPOA, even though all the signs in Europe, and this is really important and why Every week I've tried to highlight some of the companies that have pulled out as a result of the U.S. sanctions, starting with Total. And I think that really popped the cork uh, on the outflow of major corporations. Car imports to to uh, Iran are coming to nil when Peugeot and Renault and all these countries pu- companies pulled out, when uh, major refineries around the world, when even Chinese and Indian companies say they wouldn't do business, when the... Um, Shipping companies stop, and when the banks won't give, won't insure, and the insurance companies don't insure, and banks don't finance, it, it makes it impossible to do business. And we know that this, the impact of this, is being felt as the real continues to fall. The Iranian currency, the they continue to see the internal demonstrations, which go on. It's they have not stopped, and they are against Iranian involvement with Hezbollah with Hamas. They even had death to Palestine on some of the signs in, in the bizarre demonstration, the demonstrations of the bazaar. Uh, and, but they've been going on in, in, in um, some of the peripheral areas as well. Uh, again, you know, they got tired of it after the first or second round of demonstrations, but it isn't because 
uh, stopped. And, and when Rouhani can go and say you, 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 in Europe, you, the United States is going to pay a high cost for this, and to talks about, and threaten, and now they're threatening to cut off the shipping right. in the Straits of Hormuz, to which thirty percent of the crude going to the West comes every day. And at Baba Mandam, and they could use their proxies, the Houthis, to do this in Yemen because it, it abuts it. And they they have talked often about the threat of having this chokehold over commerce going. And remember, this includes then from the Suez Canal, Persian Gulf areas to even to the Indian Ocean. Uh, that this is, a, a, I think, a causes Belai. But even even without that, it is the threat has been responded to by the United States military, saying that we will keep the channels open. So this is another area that could escalate. This is, you know, you could have an incident of some kind there that could um, easily flare up. And the, the um, uh, one of the things that I think is really funny is that for three days this week, Nahum, there was an international a convention, a, a human rights festival, uh-huh. but about America, and criticizing in different categories, including cartoons uh, and drawings, uh, uh, criticizing human rights in the United States and citing specific cases. This is uh, not the first year. This is the third year that they've uh, uh, they've done it. Here's a country that's disintegrating. They're suffering extreme drought in half the country. Young people unemployment is is soaring. At least forty percent amongst the millennial women, and and very high amongst the the men. And the people are saying, "We don't want your adventurism. We need to be fed. We want you to spend the money here." They are going to have less and less money. Uh, for them, it is fortunate that the price of oil has gone up so much. So even if they have reduced sales, they still have the income from it. But we have we have to have a sustained effort. The the sanctions work. I think it's it's clear that they work. The um, the more that they make these extreme threats, it's just a reflection of the fact that they that they are feeling the uh, the impact of it. And you see even threats from some of the base leaders and others, uh, uh, which I think is an expression, certainly an organized uh, response. We also see Iran playing more of a role in Syria, and that their proxies are involved with the Syrian army near the Golan, and they put on Syrian uniforms. They uh, engage in other activities that uh, both Iran um, regulars and the, these militias, the 80,000 militias. Iranian troops, per se, are few in Syria because they let these other guys die for them. But Hezbollah has joined some of these units of the 4th Division and the, the Republican Guard in Syria, uh, so this is, um, you know, we're seeing Iran becoming more aggressive in the area, in the region. That the money that they have, they are spending on, on this, and the Europeans are again following the one policy that they know well, which is appeasement. <laughs> and and Churchill once said, appeasement is feeding the crocodile in the hope that it'll eat you last. And this is why what the United States is doing is so important of standing up to it to see the other countries that are are willing to stands up to it. If Europe doesn't even respond to the terror infrastructure that is being exposed, the fact that a, a, an employee of the embassy of Iran in Vienna and that the base, it was based in, in uh, Belgium, and we know why Belgium. So um, I think that this, 
you can't explain it. And tens of thousands of people joined a protest in Paris, which was addressed, by the way, by Rudy Giuliani and uh, the former prime minister of Canada, Harper. Mm. And um, um, it was very powerful. Even Richardson, you know, the former ambassador, governor, uh, participated. And it, it was a rally of the National Resistance Organization to, to Iran. So there is growing dissent, growing public expressions. And then the Europeans come in always with a, a life raft to, to try to save these evil forces. You mentioned a moment ago about the uh, small presence that Iran has in Syria. Just as I, as I continue to try to understand how this works in terms of his relationship with Assad, and Assad approves of that, meaning he has no problem with that presence of Iran in Syria, or he would prefer they not be there? Look, I believe ultimately he doesn't want them there. I don't think the Russians will want them there. There's a, a historic animosity, but they did back Assad and uh, together with the Russians. So at that point, Iran was very important. And what I meant was that the that Europe, that the Iranian forces per se, of course, you have Hezbollah, even though there are reports now that they've reduced the number, but there's still thousands of them there. And most of all, you got estimates range up to 80,000 members of militias that Iran controls inside Iran. And those are guys are putting on the uniforms of the, of the Syrians in order to be able to stay because the agreement is that Syrian troops would be allowed on the an area approaching the Golan, but not the Iranians. So this gives them an opportunity, a way for them to have a presence without being exposed. The, um, uh, so Iran is is uh, is there to stay. They need this. This is inc- incredibly important for uh, you know the the uh, highway corridor or what we call the Shiite Crescent, which goes from Iran through Iraq through Syria to Lebanon, right. and these areas are critical for the continuity of that. So they, they have a larger regional goal. And, of course, they have the specific interests of keeping bases and keeping uh, and in, in the Russians, I think, you know, who have almost no troops there and have a few planes flying and doing bombing missions, uh, will ultimately want to see and have said that foreign troops should get out. But it will be an ultimate decision. It doesn't mean that it will be done immediately. We should be pressing much harder. And I hope that the president, in his meeting with um, Mr. Putin, will make clear that the, it is intolerable to have these encroachments on the Golan. The fact that the, the reports that the Syrians are even setting a basis, want to reestablish their presence. This is a violation of the separation agreement um, between Israel and, and Syria that the um, United States has to make clear to President Putin and also make clear that we're not going to pull out of Syria. Uh, certainly not at this point. I know the president has said he wants to and wants to get out of these areas, but that sends the wrong message at this time to the uh, to the opposition. If they think they just can wait us out, that we will abandon some of our friends in, in the region, I don't believe that's the intent. I think that, uh, of the president. Remember, we did do bombings there. We did do other things, and have been very supportive of the Kurdish troops. How likely in their fight against ISIS? How likely is it that these issues, Israel, the Golan, the encroachment, will? will be on the Trump agenda when he meets with Putin. Well, past history shows that he has been very concerned. Um, he obviously has a lot of issues with uh, uh, with Putin, but Syria will clearly have to be a, a priority. Um, 
you know, there are also issues about East Europe, about American presence, NATO presence, uh, but um, and of course, I think the sanctions issues will, will against Iran will loom very large. Russia is part of the group that wants to fight the sanctions and looking for ways around it. Even though Iran's uh, Russia's economy is in no position to substitute, it's very small, it's weak. Uh, he has been able to manipulate that into a power base that's so remarkable, I think, and I give him credit for it. Right. Uh, but he, he certainly has become the dominant force right now in, in terms of the way things uh, will move ahead in, in Syria. So I think the United States has to make clear, A, that we're going to remain engaged. B, I think we should keep our, our troops there for now. It doesn't mean forever. And we should help bolster some of the the good guys, though they are increasingly diminished. We see the rebels being destroyed, so it leaves you the Kurds. And we're also going to have to see what Turkey, under a re-energized Erdogan, will do, given his election victory and his desire to establish himself around the world. And by the way, you know that I've talked for a long time about the thousands of mosques that he's building all over the world, Europe, Africa, elsewhere. His imams have been kicked out of four or five European countries right. just in the last few days because of the radical message and the, that they have been preaching. And yet he is, as part of his desire to reestablish the Ottoman Empire and to be the caliph, and it also accounts for the amount of money and involvement in Jerusalem, which is expanding all the time by Turkey, uh, also some of the others, but Turkey in particular, this is part of his uh, longer-term vision, which has now been further energized by the election outcome. And I want to reiterate one of the takeaways from this most recent segment, because it's an easy one to transmit to our to the young people in our families. And that is that as these leaders in Europe continue to meet with the president of Iran, at the same time as hinted by the uh, prime minister of Israel, uh, the Israelis are stopping large-scale terror attacks in Europe. And I think it's a really, really important and simple way to understand uh, part of the situation that's happening in this world of ours. Um, finally, Malcolm, I, I got to ask you what you thought of the joint declaration of the prime ministers of the state of Israel and the Republic of Poland. Uh, uh, I guess what we can now call the conclusion of this whole controversy over uh, Polish involvement in the Shoah. Hardly the conclusion. <laughs> it is only another phase now because the, the <laughs> criticism of the agreement, which was made public, uh, obviously, people hadn't seen it before, and there was a debate over whether Yad Vashem experts had signed off on it or didn't. The prime minister's office said they did. They said they didn't. And they have come out very critical about some of the portrayals, uh, and even about the Polish resistance role in helping uh, Jews in World War II and um, other issues. So rather than resolve it, I think it's reignited uh, the controversy in, in Poland. As you know, yeah. they have a, a right-wing government, and... Um, I think this could further uh, put the relationship between Israel and Poland on the line and uh, about the relationship between Jews and Poland. So hopefully we can get an amendment to it and, and see that the language is fixed up. Yeah, Section 4 of the six-section uh, joint statement is the one I think is most disturbing in terms of uh, rejecting the actions aimed at blaming Poland or the Polish nation as a whole for the atrocities committed by the Nazis. That's how it starts. But if people read the agreement, I think you'll agree that that's the one that's the most sensitive one and the one that's getting the most reaction from Yad Vashem. Um, and the original point was that about calling the concentration camps in Poland 
Nazi concentration camps in Poland and not Polish concentration camps, right. which was a valid issue and, and accepted by most people. Right. But uh, but to deny the role of Poles and to, to try to distort history and its revisionism, that is not acceptable. And I think that that's really where we're at right now. He, he, they, each one is playing to their own constituencies on it. But I think the truth here is, is really important and that was not served by the agreement. Yes, for sure. All right, we have Rabbi Yudinan from Israel. Thanks so much for your time. We will reconvene the one week from today, Bezrat Hashem, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update every Friday right here at JM in the AM.